This week on the Backtable Podcast. You need to be able to communicate. You need to be able to collaborate and you need to respect everyone. And uh, somebody that's calling you from far away for a consult, there is a reason they are consulting you because they do not have the, the skills or uh, not the skills. It's like, it's not their specialty, right? If an emergency room doctor is calling me, it's because he's not a neurologist. He's not a neurosurgeon. That's why they are calling me. Uh, he may be calling me about something really uh, simple and uh, it may be like he shouldn't have called me, but I shouldn't make them feel that because there is a reason they are calling us. So this is something that a lot of us can fall uh, into this trap and become mean and, and uh, you know, alienate people working with us. So this is something that I really talk to my residents about it. It's like, be nice, be kind to everyone. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Backtable, your source for all things endovascular and more. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on any platform like iTunes, Spotify, or even our website, backtable.com. You can follow us on social media like Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Keep up with the latest updates and please give us comments. We love hearing from you. First, a quick word from our sponsors. A decade ago, Rapid AI harnessed AI to revolutionize stroke care. Now they are bringing that same innovation to aneurysm and pulmonary embolism. This AI-powered, clinically-driven workflow platform enables care teams to accelerate triage and treatment decisions and improve operational efficiency to achieve better patient outcomes. Rapid AI, where AI meets patient care. Flow diversion is a rapidly growing treatment method for treating intracranial aneurysms. Surface-modified devices have recently become available, which show great promise in advancing patient care in terms of safety and efficacy. While long-term clinical data is still being gathered, the FredX Flow Diverter with X technology has been shown to reduce material thrombogenicity while maintaining endothelial cell growth, as seen in the Journal of Neurointerventional Surgery article from September 2022. For more information, visit fredx.com or contact your local microvention sales representative. Now, back to the show. I'm Sabine as your host today, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Pascal Jabor, a professor and division chief of neurosurgery at Jefferson University in Philly. Welcome, man. You're a celebrity. Hey, Sabine. Thank you. You're too nice. I wish I, wish I was a celebrity, but thank you. Thank you for having me uh, on, on your podcast. Uh, it's been a while. I've been looking forward to it. I've honestly wanted you on for so long. You're an amazing personality on social media. That's how we know each other, showing awareness for stroke and, and just being everywhere. So thank you. Thank you, my friend. A fun fact before we get into anything, and you know we were going to talk about this, that you know when you're not busy fixing brains, you're a <laughs> level four sommelier. I mean, that's out of control. How, you know, before we even talk about, you know, surgical training and everything, how do you train to become that? I mean, how, how did you get there? So, uh, you know, I, I was always interested by wine. I initially, I started collecting wine and I like to taste wine and read about wine. And uh, then at a point, I thought that uh, I would really like to go uh, professional and go to school and maybe try to get a diploma uh, in that. And then uh, COVID came. And so uh, during that time or a little bit before COVID, I used to drive next to the wine school of Philadelphia and I would look at it and say, well, you know what? I would like to go there. I would like to enroll. 
But, you know, with our busy life and what we do, I mean, sometimes it gets overwhelming and uh, you really need to find some time and make the effort to be able to do that. And one day I said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. I go online. I, I looked at the time of, of, of the courses and everything. And there were like some evening courses and you can go after eight and do it. And I enrolled and it's step by step. So you enroll, you go, you do your stuff, you take your test and then you can move to the next step and it becomes you know addicting and then I kept on going for two to three years until I became a level four and I stopped now because the next level I have to take a couple of years of uh, neurosurgery to be able to do it and I'm not sure uh, the hospital here will be happy about that. (laughs) (laughs) You're too modest I mean you make it sound easy but that's a very amazing accomplishment it's way better than my four dollar bottles of wine that I get at uh, Trader Joe's but one of these days outside of this topic we've talked about having you know you, you Bob Ryu Mike Watts on just we should just talk about wine. (laughs) You know, I can tell you, you're talking about the $4 bottle of wine. Listen, anyone can go and put a big amount of money and buy a good bottle, right? That's not the challenge. The challenge is to be able to find an affordable wine, but a really good wine, because not, not all the expensive wine means it's a good wine. And not all the not expensive wine, I don't like to say cheap wine. I like to say not expensive wine. Not all the not expensive wine means that it's not good wine. So actually, we, we, every now and then we do events where we, we say, you know what, show up with your best less than $20 bottle of wine and you'll have surprises. And we've discovered really so many good wines. So again, if, if at any point I'm in LA or if you're in Philly, Give me a ring and then we can do something interesting. Oh, we'll definitely do that. <laughs> well, that's amazing. Well, we're, we're, I'm going to take you up on that, Pasco. But uh, I want to delve into some of the nitty gritty of um, vascular neurosurgery training and what happens afterwards. But before that, uh, let's uh, learn about your background. I mean, what was your training and how did you end up becoming division chief? Yeah, so I'm going to start from the beginning. I'm originally Lebanese from a little small country in the Middle East. Uh, I I went to medical school there at the St. Joseph Medical School, a Jesuit medical school. And then I did actually a neurosurgery residency in Lebanon. And then uh, I decided to come to the U.S. uh, and I had to redo my residency all over again. So I've done because one residency wasn't enough. (laughs) So I decided to do a, a second residency. So yeah, I did a second residency in neurosurgery and uh, I got really interested by vascular neurosurgery here at Jefferson. Uh, you know, our chairman, Dr. Rosenwasser, he, he trained me and he was one of the first neurosurgeons to introduce uh, neurosurgery to the field of endovascular And one time I was a third year resident on the floor carrying the pager. Uh, You know, in neurosurgery, a third year is considered a junior resident. (laughs) So so I was a junior resident, a third year neurosurgery resident. He saw me, he said, hey, uh, hey, kiddo, what's going on? Uh, I said, I'm carrying the pager. He's like, is anybody dying? I said, no, he's like, come with me. So he grabbed my hand and took me down to the basement to the INR suite. At that time, I was like, wow, you know, usually my chairman talks to fellows and chiefs. He's talking to me. So he he told me, put this lead on. I'm going to show you some things. So I put the lead on and then he takes me through a diagnostic angiogram. 
And I was at the end, I was like, whoa, oh my God, that's, that's what I want to do. I was like really uh, excited about it. And then I ran right away to our program coordinator. I was at third year. I told her, I want to reserve my fellowship for in, in four years after I'm done. She, she looked at me. It's like, you're a third year. It's in four years from now. Are you sure that's what you want to do? I was like, absolutely. That's what I want to do. He said, okay, I'm going to talk to, to uh, the chairman. I said, I already talked to him. He, he told me to go and put my name out there. So anyway, and this is how uh, it started. I finished. I did my, my fellowship. And then uh, before I was done, I was called to the boss's uh, office. And uh, he said, uh, you know, you're staying here. You don't, ha you don't have an option. I'm not asking you. You're going to stay here. And uh, I actually didn't do any interviews anywhere else. I just stayed. And looking, looking back, I think that's the best thing I've ever done, really. They knew you were the best, so they wanted you. You know, it's, it's funny when you just say these are like some pivotal moments in your life can just influence you so much, just going down to that INR suite. I mean, I, I had something similar when I, I saw a uterine fibroid embolization. I said, this is what I have to do, you know, very, very similar. You, you mentioned you did a vascular neurosurgery fellowship. How, that, how long is a vascular neurosurgery fellowship? So if you've done 100 uh, diagnostic angiograms during your residency, uh, you would do it in one year. Because remember, during residency, you're trained in open vascular techniques and everything. And then uh, you do the year and, uh, and then you're, you're done. So. Do the um, endovascular techniques that you see then, is that kind of like an elective during your residency of a typical neurosurgery residency? So some people might not get as much. Yeah, that's right. It depends how, how interested you are in endovascular. But now more and more programs are making of it a, an official uh, rotation for their neurosurgery residents. It's like they have to cover an OR room. They have to cover an INR room. So here it depends if, if you're interested in, uh, in uh, vascular. Uh, during your residency, you can come spend time in INR and you even do a rotation out of it. Uh, and get involved. So uh, it depends. And if you are in a program where they are busy in endovascular, you can finish your residency where you're really familiar with uh, not just diagnostic, but even endovascular uh, procedures. So, How many residents are um, in your program at Jefferson? So we have, we have four residents a year, uh, one of the biggest uh, programs in the country. And, uh, you know, when I think of it, maybe half of our residents end up going doing uh, vascular. How many attendings are overall in Jefferson? We have uh, five uh, vascular attendings in downtown, but we are a total of, uh, of 13 uh, vascular attendings with the affiliates uh, because we, we have affiliates and uh, off-sites covering uh, hospitals. But in downtown, it's five of us. That's amazing. That's a huge program. That's great. Are all of them going in, in helicopters and doing a mobile stroke? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we have the mobile mobile stroke unit in uh, that that uh, covers a, a great big suburb of uh, the northeast of Philadelphia, and it's been now around four or five years. It's been it's been really great with the mobile stroke unit. You know, that's some other topic in the future. I definitely want to talk to you more about because it's amazing what you're doing. Half of these residents that are coming out of your program, Pascal, if they're doing the vascular pathway, 
when they're coming out, how does it work? I mean, is it, um, are they primarily, do they want to do endovascular techniques? Are they also typically coming out and saying they will do both open and endovascular? Yeah. So, so again, just to, to be clear that they have to do the fellowship, just being being just a resident and graduating from the program is not enough to be able to do endovascular. So once they graduate, the majority of them are doing general neurosurgery and some vascular. Now, saying that few programs in the country where neurosurgeons are working by pure subspecialty, you need to be really busy. For example, our practice, my practice is 100% vascular. And uh, not, you can't afford to do that in a lot of places if you don't have a big, big volume. So I do open and endovascular, but I do just vascular. Now, um, more and more with the graduating residents, they have to do general neurosurgery while doing vascular too. And actually, they are a majority are interested in having this uh, hybrid, hybrid practice of general neurosurgery and doing some vascular in addition to it. So this is mainly the model now that we're seeing more and more, because as you know, vascular is getting fragmented and more and more hospitals are uh, interested in the being stroke centers or at least thrombectomy ready and things like that. So uh, I think the volumes are not anymore in the big academic center, but uh, it's, being, it's being divided in the community. And this is why we decided to branch out as Jefferson and we have so many sites in the community because this is better serving the community you know, instead of having to always fly in the patient to, to center city where sometimes they are here too late and they have a completed infarct and there's nothing that can be done, that way we can serve them close to where they live. Yeah, no, that's totally true. I mean, I mean, transferring always takes so long, you know, and, and if you're able to, to treat them there, you're going you're gonna to get much better outcomes. For people coming out, I mean, so you're saying, is it mainly volume then that kind of keeps up their skills as far as doing vascular and doing open? I mean, how much in your practice, how much is are you doing open vascular uh, cases versus endo? Yeah. So in our practice, we do around 30% open and around 70% uh, endovascular. And again, yes, numbers are the most important thing to keep the skills. And uh, I think that uh, neurosurgeons that are able to keep the numbers uh, should be able to do both techniques, open and endovascular. You know, we, we, we're kind of a breed that sometimes they give us hard time from both sides. Like my own people, my own neurovascular people give me hard time. Those are the people that do only open vascular. They look at me and say, well, come on, guys, you guys do both techniques. You won't be able to be as good in open because you don't do much. And then I, I get it from the other side, uh, from the interventional neurologist and interventional neuroradiologist saying, well, well, you guys, uh, neurosurgeons, you do open, you're not going to be good in endovascular. So that's why, you know, I, ha I have a, a, a lecture that, that I give all around about uh, being a duly trained neurosurgeon, trying at the end as a conclusion saying, please stop calling us duly trained neurosurgeons or hybrid neurosurgeons or open endo. We are just vascular neurosurgeons. If you are a vascular neurosurgeon, you should be able to take care of the disease regardless of the tool. So, and again, don't, don't understand me wrong. I'm not saying only vascular neurosurgeons should take care of neurovascular because it can be perfectly the job of the interventional neuroradiologist if they have 
an open vascular neurosurgeon colleague that can back them up and, and have a good collaboration, or it can perfectly be the job of an intervention neurologist if they have also a, a backup. But it's mainly for, you know, the the vascular neurosurgeon telling me that, you know what, you cannot be as good in open as in endo. So, and, and another, another great model like, like you, Sabine, you know, I respect you and I'm impressed by you how, how really, I mean, you master the, the catheter technique and then it doesn't matter what organ you're working on. You, you've mastered it. And then here you are, you know, they can call you to embolize a trauma, uh, a pelvic bleed from a trauma, and then they can call you to go up and open a, an intracranial vessel uh, and do a stroke. Because you know what? We don't have enough people to take care of stroke. We need all the bodies available, but they need to have the good training, right? To be able to be able to do it. So uh, yeah, yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I I agree. It, it's it's training and mentorship that's so important. I'm sure you know it. Being you're probably a really great mentor to all the people that you train, and you know those are what kind of you know help you broaden your horizons. It's very interesting that you mentioned that there's you know let's let's call it quote turf wars even within your own vascular neurosurgeon saying that oh you can't stick with one or the other. But yeah, that's what I really wanted to delve in. I mean, why do people think you can only do this or the other? How, what is in your lecture that you give that shows that, look, I could and should do both? Yeah, yeah. So again, as I said, if you are in a busy center and, you, and you're doing all that, I think it all goes from the same issue and the same debate about which is better open or endovascular. And I think we are at a point where we're beyond that. We're beyond the cult of the technique or the cult of the device, and we should stop doing that. At this point, we are all, we should all be disease-oriented and not procedure-oriented or not technique-oriented or not device-oriented. Uh, again, if I'm arguing with someone that's been doing open vascular surgery for every vascular uh, disease for the last 20, 30 years, Yes, they're not going to be happy seeing that the numbers are coming down and now we have something called flow diversion. Guess what? We have flow diversion, so we don't have to do a bypass on every giant carotid-ophthalmic aneurysm or anything like this, and we are able to get good results. So again, I think the, the reason behind saying that, oh, you can do both is just trying to deny the fact that now we have new techniques and now we're doing less and less uh, open surgery. And then I tell them, you know what? We are the one that's going to be able to keep the art alive, right? You're talking to a neurosurgeon here. So I'll be the one to be able to really be objective and say, well, this is an endovascular case or, or not. You know what? We shouldn't push the envelope so much on that one. And this should be an open case. So disruptive innovation, it's going to happen regardless if we like it or not. It's happening. So it's either it's up to you. You're going to deny it and you're going to close your eyes and say, oh, no, 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 blah, la 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 la. It's not happening. Yeah. Or you're going to jump on the on the train or jump on the boat because you know what? Guess what? This boat already sailed long time ago. And and that's fine. If you don't want to jump on the boat and keep on doing what you're doing, that's OK. You can keep on doing what you're doing, but you cannot deny or ignore what's happening around you in the world. Right. I mean, and uh, and, you know, I respect a lot of uh, open vascular surgeons saying that, well, that's great. I wish we had this when I was training. And I have a lot of them telling me, well, if I have to retrain 
I would retrain in both techniques. Uh, you know, and more and more now. Now you see people training in in both techniques. So yeah, I mean, exactly. You basically, you know, don't don't be stuck in the old ways. I mean, having having the perspective of both sides in vascular neurosurgery, and then among everything. I mean, this is something that doesn't just specifically apply to vascular neurosurgery. It's everything that we do in medicine that you have the old thought of, of way how old things are done and how new things are done. You have to have disruptive techniques, technology, and people to kind of advance medicine, right? We've had, you know, similar, um, it, you know, turf wars and things in limb salvage programs, right? With, between IR, vascular surgery, interventional cardiology, but we have definitely now slowly become much more collaborative. We, you, you can even see it on on social media over the past couple of years that before there was a lot of infighting. I mean, there still can be, but we have meetings now where we all meet together. You know, national meetings and international, and, and so it, it's getting better. Do you see something like that in vascular neurosurgery, like or even specific disease modalities like stroke? Uh, do you see that type of collaboration happening? You know, what, what I talked about is less and less happening. And now more and more open vascular surgeons are realizing that the technique is here to stay. And all the new generation of vascular neurosurgeons are being uh, trained in endovascular techniques too. So less and less it, this issue is happening. And I think that we're getting better with collaborating with, with other specialties. We're getting better in cross-training, like I train neurologists and uh, you know, historically, we trained only neurosurgeons. Now we've, we're training neurologists and, uh, and neurology programs are training neurosurgeons and uh, radiology programs are training neurosurgeons and vice versa. So this is where it should go. And this is how it should be, I think. I think, you know, at the end of the day, we are all assembled or we are all around like one, one organ, which is the vessel. Right. So uh, it's 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 the vessel, it's the endothelium, it's the vessel, like regardless. I mean, I am I feel that I'm closer to a, a interventional neuroradiologist or interventional neurologist than I am uh, to a colleague of mine, neurosurgeon who does spine. Right. Or who does tumors. So at the end of the day, we are all we should all in the future belong to a vascular department. Right. It's a vascular department. We talk the same language, you and me. When I talk to you about catheter, you understand, right? We don't talk the same language, me and uh, my spine partner or me and my tumor partner. So we should, uh, we all should uh, collaborate and realize that, you know, we are the, we treat the same diseases and everyone brings something extra to the table, right? Everyone brings something more. I I, I love to, um, to, to listen to my, uh, uh, neurology fellows where they in stroke they give me good advice I learn from them I love to go to conferences uh, and listen to my uh, neuroradiology colleagues teaching me about anatomy man they know anatomy more than anybody else you know uh, it's it's really what what's been happening happening with the collaboration with the with the meetings I can tell you when I first started you know I used to go to the CV section and this was a small meeting only for vascular neurosurgeons. Uh, then there was the SNIS. I've never been to the SNIS. It was all like interventional neuroradiologists. And then there was the SVIN. It was all uh, neurologists. But now I go to all those meetings. And guess what? I love the SNIS meeting. 
I feel that I'm I'm like there. I'm I'm meeting everyone, and uh, so we're moving to a more collaborative uh, model in the country, and I think that's great. Oh, just a second, actually. For our listeners, I just got to witness Pascal taking a teleconsult for he's on call right now, and and uh, had a stroke consult from a, an hour and a half away, and uh, I had to say that was a pretty pretty amazing thing to witness. So. Nice job, Pascal. <laughs> you know, of course, the, the console will be edited out, but uh, I had to give you mad, uh, mad kudos to that. You know, we were, you, you, were, you were saying, and it's true, it's much more collaborative. I mean, SVIS, SNIS, and um, it's, you really do learn little things from each different person. I mean, it, if you get stuck in a bottle, then that's all you kind of know. I mean, when I was stuck in my residency and I came to my work I thought everything we did was the right way I only knew you know one path of everything and then I started learning more from just even people within my own field and then working with other people you learn so much just like you said I mean you learned so much from a um, interventional neurologist a, a, a neurointerventionalist a neurosurgeon because everyone has their own you know their perspective and that's how you get better absolutely yeah yeah I mean it opens the horizons and I can tell you, uh, like more than 15 years ago, we were people were building up walls. Now they are demantling those walls, which are, it's really great to see uh, what's happening because I witnessed when everyone was like defensive and building up the, the walls b- around them. You know, I see it on social media, um, you know, as far as, you know, being very amiable and, and open to other specialties, that, that kind of attitude and everything really grows our field. Uh, and and it's, it's nice to have leaders like you and in other fields to really, you know, progress stroke, progress so many other parts uh, of vascular neurosurgery. You know, for, for people, what kind of things do you say to your trainees coming out? I mean, you know, when they ask you for advice as far as going into the field, what, what's kind of your pep talk or everything to them um, that you can kind of give our listeners? Yeah, so I, I talk about two things mainly. I talk about their practice, clinical practice, and I talk about the their environment and who they are working with because it's two two totally different things right like you you a lot of times you hear is like oh great surgeon great doctor but so bad with with the uh, bad character and they, they they don't get along and you can't talk to them and uh, unavailable and things like that so so those two things are really it's a shame to have really a good uh, doctor but uh, no communication skills and who doesn't work well with with others, and it, it's really bad to have that. So, uh, first of all, I tell them that uh, you're working with other people. You're not on an island. Remember, I mean, wherever you're gonna go, you're gonna be working with so many people. So at this point, uh, regardless what specialty, regardless how many years of residency you've done, regardless, you need to be able to communicate. You need to be able to collaborate. And you need to respect everyone. And uh, somebody that's calling you from far away for a consult, there is a reason they are consulting you because they do not have the the skills or uh, not the skills. It's like it's not their specialty, right? If an emergency room doctor is calling me, it's because he's not a neurologist. He's not a neurosurgeon. That's why they are calling me. Uh, he may be calling me about something really uh, simple. And uh, it may be like he shouldn't have called me. But I shouldn't make them feel that because 
there is a reason they are calling us. So this is something that a lot of us can fall uh, into this trap and become mean and, and uh, you know, alienate people working with us. So this is something that I really talk to my residents about it. It's like, be nice, be kind to everyone because the ER physician, or I give an example in ER, I don't have anything against the ER physician, but I don't think they w- woke up this morning saying, oh, let's call a neurosurgeon and torture them, right? There is a reason they are calling you. Now, from a technical standpoint and practice uh, standpoint, uh, again, I mean, I think it's very important to have uh, senior uh, colleagues with them and uh, to run cases by them. When I first started, I had the luxury of having uh, seniors with me where before I'm going to do a case, I was like, uh, can I show you this case? What do you think? Even if in my mind, I'm sure what I'm going to do, but it's good to have two or three eyes. And so run the case by people. Then if you're going to do Something that you've never seen before that you've never done, maybe that's not a good idea to do it. And maybe that uh, should hold off on it and don't do that. And, uh, you know, be honest with patients and and try to really sit down and try to think of every patient as, as if it's uh, their family member. And again, I know we, we are all sometimes we, we are all excited about new devices and we want to use them and we want to, you know, we are all excited about enrolling in trials and doing things and and, and and that, but always don't lose your goal and don't lose the target. At the end of the day, is it's all about the patient and don't do anything that really you're deep in, in you. It should be 100% convinced that that's the best option for the patient. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Those are great. I mean, I think people are really lucky at Jefferson to train under you, man. I mean, other than, you know, doing all this level four sommelier robotic vascular, <laughs> so you should figure out a way to clone yourself, put yourself in all other, oh. you know, training programs and teach this because these are just amazing facets of information that everyone should know and follow. Pascal, I mean, I, I really enjoyed having you on the show for this topic. I really, really would love to, you know, explore other things that you are doing. So we're definitely going to have you back. Really, thank you so thank much. You. This was this was so it was so warming to hear all of this and what you're doing. And really, again, like I said, your colleagues and everyone who trains under you're very lucky. Thank you so much. Well, th- thank you, Sabine. It was really a pleasure spending this time with you and. Thank you for having me. And again, I'm happy to come back again anytime you want to invite me again. Now, let's let, let's see the feedback of the audience. Maybe you will never invite me again, but we will see. <laughs> I can already tell you it's going to be great. <laughs> and uh, and uh, hope to meet you yeah, in person soon, absolutely. my friend. Absolutely, 100%. Uh, yeah, thanks to the Backtable team. Thanks to Nick for being our engineer today. And yeah, Pascal, look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. 
Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.